Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Janelle Bowers. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Check Please, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in April 2017. And our first story of the evening, Leslie Ty, says that she wasn't sure about the New York guy she was traveling to visit, but she decided to go anyway and quickly confirmed her suspicions when the check arrived. So my story takes place in 2005, um, and it was kind of a year where I was leaving a few things. Um, I was leaving uh, my life in Los Angeles um, and coming to move up here permanently um, that school year um, to teach at Interlochen Arts Academy. And I was also leaving my 20s. So it was the year, um, June of 2005, I turned 30. And um, uh, for those of you who have heard me tell some dating stories before, you know that I was kind of a late bloomer to the dating world. Um, really didn't start dating anybody until after college. Um, and, you know, then moving up to Traverse City, um, and being a single person and trying to date. I don't know, has anybody tried to do that here before? <laughs> it's really not easy. Yeah. And I had been um, really a, a fan of online dating when I was living in Los Angeles. Like, it actually was really, I think it was the reason why I actually started dating a lot because I met some really great people and had some really great relationships because I'm a writer and being able to meet people kind of through writing first was, was just kind of an advantage that I had, and so I really loved it. But online dating up here is really not any better than like trying to date somebody, meet people in person. So it was, it was really tough. Um, so I got a message from a guy online named Dave. I call him Connecticut Dave because he lived in Connecticut. And I was like, I don't know about this whole, like, trying to meet somebody who lives in a different state. Is this worth my time? I don't know. But not like I'm meeting anybody here. So, um, and he just, I don't know, he was kind of cool. He was kind of, kind of fun. Um, he was also a teacher at a boarding high school in Connecticut, obviously. And um, actually, I have one of the first uh, message I because I don't delete any emails like seriously if you look at my phone it says 53,560 so I know you all hate me right now <laughs> everybody hates me when they see my phone but um but I still have this um so I don't know he was just he was kind of dorky cute um he uh what does he say here uh um, I'm really difficult to classify or describe for that matter. My students are always teasing me about having life ADD. I think I'm s somewhat of a cross between Curious George and the Little Prince, albeit a non-suicidal Little Prince who travels from place to place and wants to learn everything about anything and then becomes passionate about each new experience. Um, he wrote, um, I'm a fairly self-actualized and open, especially for a male, I believe, and I'm comfortable doing what I do each day. And no, I don't make a habit of emailing exotic and faraway women, especially those on the fringes of my time zone. But at the risk of sounding disingenuous, your profile was different and compelling, and so it compelled me to respond, 231 area code notwithstanding. <laughs> I don't know, you know, whatever, like the most interesting uh, message uh, online dating that I'd gotten up here. So, you know, I, we, we started messaging. We started emailing back and forth, and 
I thought, you never know, and I- even if nothing happens, it's still an interesting person to meet, and we started, we exchanged phone numbers, and we started talking um, quite often for hours and hours at a time, and um, it was just, he was really, he was fun. He was like, you know, really had a great sense of humor, which is always something I love. Um, you know, he talked about how his students would make fun of him because he wore those pants. I don't know what they're called, but they have like the little designs, like little flamingos and like little anchors. And I was like, I'm such a dork, but I just my style and I like them. And I was like, oh, that's so cute. So we're talking a lot for hours and hours, and this is, you know, kind of spring of 2005, and the year is kind of coming to a close, the school year is coming to a close, and he knew I was going to be in Colorado for the summer. I didn't have a, any job or anywhere to stay when the school year ended. I lived on campus, and um, he loved to travel. He, le- he really did. He loved to travel to different places and loved to go to Colorado, and he was like, you know what? I think I should come to Colorado. Um, I should come, we should come meet, you know, um, there's this concert happening, I was thinking about going, like, we should go to this concert, and so, I thought, wow, okay, he's actually really interested, maybe, you know, again, I don't know what's going to happen with this, but I put a lot of weight in my 20s with my relationships, really with the guy, you know, if it was going to be casual, I was okay with that, but it was like, the guy was going to decide that, right, and then I was going to kind of go forward with with whatever he was comfortable with. And so I started to think, you know, I haven't been to New York City in a while. Um, I'm turning 30 in June, and I have friends there. I have a place to stay. And I know he went to New York City all the time. He talked about how he loved to go. He had friends in New York City. He went there all the time on the train. He always went to Mud Coffee. It was like his favorite coffee spot. And so I, you know, after we were talking about meeting up in Colorado, I said, you know, I was thinking about going to New York City in June, what do you think about that, you know? He was like, oh, that'd be amazing. That'd be so great. You know, I, I want to show you all these places and just really great. I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. So the school year was, my school year was coming to a close before his, um, you know, and I was like, okay, I'm going to buy this plane ticket. I'm going to make this plan. And it was kind of crazy. I had to pack all my stuff and drive to Colorado. And then his school year was coming to a close. And we were just like not talking as much didn't seem odd or anything it's just we were both really busy and then it's June and I'm realizing oh well my trip is like in a couple weeks like I need to get in touch we need to kind of figure this out and he's suddenly kind of like not responding to me very often or like texting me back like in the middle of the night and I don't get it till the next day and then I'm trying to text him he's like oh school's really crazy we're in final exams and he was like getting ready for some race that he was going to race in, but I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to be there these dates, you know, I'd love to, when are we going to meet up? And it became clearer and clearer that perhaps this was not going to happen, and I bought this plane trip, this plane ticket and going to New York. Um, and finally, he kind of fessed up and was like, actually, I'm not really even going to be in the area for the time that you're there. I have this other trip planned. And he was like, I think maybe this one day I'm going to be around New York City. Maybe. So I'm like, great. Well, okay. Well, you know, let me know and we'll try to meet up. And so I go to New York City. And it was, it was kind of a great trip in that it was like the first time I went there by myself for no reason. Um, 
first time I ever took a subway by myself and, you know, was kind of navigating the city. I was staying with a friend, but she was working. So it really was kind of me and, you know, New York City. So it was kind of great, actually. And But I still was like, this guy better follow through and actually meet with me because I did plan this trip to meet with him. So finally, the day that he had said he was going to be in the city, <coughs> he texted me and he's like, oh, okay, so I'm here. I'm only going to be here a few hours, though, so I understand if you, you know, if you have plans, whatever, you can't make it. I was like, oh, are you going to go to Mud, your favorite coffee shop? He's like, oh, yeah, I'm planning to go there this afternoon. Oh, well, I happen to be staying two blocks away from there, so I'll meet you there. So I caught him, and he, like, had to meet me. So we go to Mud, and... I mean, it's awkward <laughs> from, like, the very start. It's so awkward. Like, it's so evident that he knows what a jerk he is, but he can't, like, admit what a jerk he is. And I'm, like, just waiting for him to admit what a jerk he is. I mean, a few years later, I would have said, okay, what's your problem? Why are you an asshole and why did you lead me on, right, and say all these things. But, again, I had just turned 30, and I was, again, kind of late to this whole thing, and I guess kind of claiming what I needed from somebody. So I didn't, but I was just waiting. I was just waiting for him to finally say something. And I ordered a salad. I, was, I hadn't had lunch. I was starving. He got his, like, magical mud coffee and, like, a big cookie. And we're sitting there, like, awkwardly talking about stupid stuff and my trip and what's going on with him. And I'm just like, okay, this guy, just he's not going to – He's not going to fess up and, and explain to me why he even did this, you know, why he even said all these things. I don't know why I thought he was an adult. He's apparently not. So the waitress comes with a check, and he gets out his wallet, like he should, and he gets out his credit card, and the waitress says, oh, I'm sorry, we don't take credit cards. <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, I don't know. It. I'm like, this is your favorite coffee shop. You say you come here every time you come to New York City, and yet you don't know that they don't take credit cards. So I pay for the check. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is the perfect, perfect ending for this whole thing. I, like, think maybe, you know, this guy wants to meet me. He really didn't want to meet me. I flew to New York, and I pick up the check. So we have that awkward, like, walk a couple blocks, like, towards where my friend lives. And I'm just noticing how, like, this is New York City. And there is a bodega on every corner with an ATM light flashing, right? And I'm just waiting for him to be like, I'm such a jerk. Let me get some cash and pay you back. Nope. Nope. He's just completely, and he's, I mean, he doesn't even apologize. He's like, I just don't understand. I didn't know that. Blah, 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 blah. So we have this like awkward hug, goodbye. He goes, and I'm just like, delete his contact from my phone. And really it was really kind of me leaving this notion behind that I have to put, like I have to put the weight in his hands, right? I had really realized that with every relationship, every new guy I was meeting, I was waiting for him to decide, is this serious? Is this just like, you know, casual playing around, and, and I would go with it and, and have my heart, like, broken every time, and I just decided I'm not going to do that anymore, you know. I'm going to decide, and I'd rather be alone and happy with myself 
than be waiting for some guy to tell me whether we can, you know, be in a relationship or whether he wants to meet me or, or go to some place together. So it was it was me leaving behind that kind of like twenty something, um, waiting for the guy. Thank you. <laughs> Next, when Jen Loop took her first long solo backpacking trip, it was through the lens of a need to escape. But then she checked out of the escape when she found she had a growing unease with another backpacker in her midst. I think that we all, throughout our lives, try to develop our own methods of escape. Escape from society, escape from our own brains. And if we're lucky, by the time we're adults, we come up with healthy, healthy coping mechanisms. Now, when I was younger, I spent a lot of time alone. I grew up at the end of a two-track, which is a single-lane dirt road. We were on a lake, and I spent a lot of time making up my own games. I would catch frogs and snakes, I had a particular favorite of trying to make it from one, one end of a swamp to the other without falling in. Um, you learn how to balance, you learn what looks stable, what doesn't. Um, I would spend time swinging by myself, listening to John Denver and my little cassette tape. Um, and so I, I had a pretty solitary upbringing. I had brothers and sisters, or a brother and a sister, but I did not play with them much. Um, but this was always a really good me time. It really suited me well. I'm fairly introverted. so. It made sense that as I'm going through life and developing how I'm going to operate within this world, I got very into backpacking um, in my late 20s. And so I took a, a few solo trips, and I was gearing up towards a week-long trip um, on Isle Royale. So Isle Royale is an island in Lake Superior. It's the biggest island and the biggest freshwater lake in the world. And it is rather large. You can probably spend a week going from one end to the other. And it's fairly remote. You have to take a three to four hour boat ride to get there. And from here, it would be a 10 hour drive. So I spent some time planning this trip. And then it happened to come at a very good spot in my life. I was in a relationship where I was spinning my wheels, kind of one of those where I was getting obsessive and not figuring out a solution. And so I thought this time away where I was completely remote and had to stick in my own head would really help me try to figure this out and maybe him too. Well, of course, I left Traverse City at 4 o'clock in the evening to catch a boat at 7 the next morning because I had to say goodbye <laughs> to this guy. Um, and I spent that 10-hour trip about halfway uh, to Copper Harbor. I realized I had forgotten my Nalgene bottles. Now, the one thing you really need to keep track of when you're solo camping is water, and I had no way to carry water. So then I was back on my phone with all my friends, um, or with a few very good, helpful friends, trying to figure out where in the UP actually would sell water bottles that I could take on a camping trip. I ended up in a Walmart in Escanaba, <laughs> um, probably at about, yeah, 11, 11 at night. And so I, I got some, and then we were back on. Basically, I was pinging around all of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I'm so thankful we had GPS at that point, or I had GPS at that point, because I think I got lost around Marquette. I spent about 12 hours to get there, and I got there at about 2 in the morning. Now, 
a mile outside of Copper Harbor, my phone completely lost service. This is a complete dead zone. And then about five minutes later, it just died. It, it was just too tired. <laughs> it didn't want to work anymore. And so I couldn't even let people know that I had made it, um, my family, or particularly this person I had been spending a lot of time talking to. So I had this moment of panic after this night of panic where I was like, well, no one will ever know if I ever made it up here or if I made it on the boat or I made it to the island. And yet I still had to continue on my journey. I spent about two hours packing and repacking my backpack because when you're doing solo camping and hiking, you have to carry everything you need. And that means all your food, all your clothes, your shelter, your tent, and the stove if you'd like something warm at some point. And so that's a lot of weight to carry, especially if you're a small person. And so I was obsessively going over what I needed, what I didn't need, and probably got about two hours of sleep before I made it to the dock in the morning. And then I got to the dock and they canceled the boat because Lake Superior can be a very difficult lake and this was the last week of the season that they were taking tourists or, or um, casual people out to the island. So they had over 10 feet waves and they don't usually say they're not going, but they were not going. So then I was in Copper Harbor trying to figure out what I was gonna do with my time without a phone, without a way to really connect with anyone and yet still thinking I needed to make the boat the next day. Well, I backtracked. I went to Houghton. I had a nice good meal. I talked to some friends after getting a new loaner phone and got some encouragement to keep going. I found a hotel where I walked into the lobby and was filled with plants and postcards and letters and pictures that people had sent this gentleman that was running this, this little motel and cats. Now, I worked at a zoo for seven years. Almost everyone thinks that they have a bobcat cat or a wolf hybrid. They don't. <laughs> um, but this was a half bobcat cat. It absolutely was. And there were pictures that people had sent him and you know he had sent them. And, and so this felt like, okay, this is a good sign. Now, after all these bad signs, we're moving forward. We're gonna be able to take this trip. So I got on the boat the next morning and out of Copper Harbor, took a four-hour trip to Isle Royal, and then I was on the island, and I was on my own. There were a few couples that had taken the boat out. There were a few solo men, but there weren't any women soloing by themselves. And that's not uncommon. Um, I was finding it fascinating how people were treating me. They kept their distance. It's almost like my personal bubble got to be a little bit bigger than it usually is because they would stop, and when you're doing these kind of things out in remote areas, people wanna know what you're doing, just it's a way of, of forming camaraderie. And so they'll ask you where you're staying and what your plan is and your itinerary is, but when you ask a single woman who's there by herself where she's gonna stay that night, it becomes a little awkward. <laughs> so they would kind of refrain from those questions or try to ask generally about the trip without really getting into my business, and I appreciated that in some ways. Um, so I was very able to hone in on my own kind of journey. Now, I managed a week alone. I hiked probably over 10 miles a day because I was pretty poor at planning where I was gonna actually stop. But during this time, I had to make decisions that really were affecting life and death. Now, yes, there are rangers out there. If you really hike to a hill, you can often get cell service, but I didn't have a phone on. Um, sometimes they, it actually, they were, the ranger was telling us it will ping to Minnesota, so you want to tell them that you're actually on Isle Royal so they know where to come find you. Um, but 
I made it through thinking that I had a twinge in my ankle where it could have ended up being a strain and I wanted to really get to a certain camping site, but I had to make the decision to not. I had to re-divert my attention and kind of think through what would be the most practical thing to do in a situation where I was the only one to make that decision. So that was sort of why I seek these situations out, or had been, and why I continue to do so, is these moments of panic can really help you hone in on these ideas of coping skills. So I made it through some moose gauntlets, what I affectionately call moose gauntlets, which are these boardwalks that are about four feet off the ground. They're about a foot and a half wide. And here I am with my 40-pound pack, worried that a moose is just going to jump out from somewhere and knock me over or scare me over. And then so it was I, I, I was practicing my childhood skills when I was going through that. Well, I made it through. I had 36 hours where I did not see another human being, which is very hard to do unless you hole up in a room somewhere. And I got back to the last campsite the last night before the boat was going to go. A lot of people had been gathering there. And I had to have a site pretty close to other people, which after a week away from, you know, civilization, I wasn't too keen on, but it was fine. He was a solitary type guy, and he wasn't really making eye contact or trying to talk to me, and I felt like that was just fine. So I pitched my tent inside of this shelter. It had a screen door on the front, and it was just this three-sided shelter um, for warmth, because um, again, this was the end of November. And I went to bed at sunset because you get into walking this much and you were just tired. Well, I was woken up in the middle of the night by the most calamitous noise I think I have ever heard. It was like a cartoon. I sat up straight and was looking around in my tent. I couldn't see anything. Um, and it sounded like the guy, what I was reasoning, the guy was trying to break down the door to get into my, my shelter and then my tent. I had put a broom across the door pretty sure that's not what I heard, but I thought that might have been effective. Um, and I was so exhausted and so tired and so at peace with where I had come on this journey that I decided that all I was going to do was grab a flask of gin that I had taken with me and not drank the entire trip, take three shots, and go back to sleep. <laughs> Which I did. And I was probably asleep within five minutes. Well, I woke up the next morning clearly not dead, I unzipped my tent and walked outside and the guy was making breakfast. And the first thing he says to me was, did you see that moose trying to get into your shelter last night? <laughs> he wasn't trying to kill me, but he certainly was not trying to help me. So I think my instincts were a little spot on there. And he said he sat and watched it for like 20 minutes. Um, and there were, there were like trees down and all this. So... Though, I don't always say reverting to three shots of gin as your coping skill um, is necessarily the most healthy at some points in life. You know, sometimes it can be a 10-hour drive, a four-hour boat ride, pitching your tent in a shelter, but sometimes it really does just need to be three shots of gin. <laughs> Thank you. In our next story, Chef Eric Patterson told of how his path toward his career began when he met his first true love, stovetop popcorn.
On a warm spring day in 1978, I, uh, I fell in love for the very first time in my life. Um, I grew up in a small northwest Kansas town. I was 11 years old. Uh, my mom and dad owned the, lic the, 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 the liquor store. That's <laughs> on my mind. <coughs> my mom and dad owned the, uh, the local uh, Sears catalog store. Uh, it was kind of Amazon.com before Amazon <laughs> came around in the 80s. Um, and so they wouldn't get home uh, until about 5.30, 6 o'clock every night. So when my sister and I would get home, we were basically on our own, and we, we had to have our own devices and, and, and get something to eat. And, and, and typically when we got off the bus, uh, we were hungry. We needed to make something to eat. And so I, uh, I fell in love that day over a batch of popcorn. Um, as most of you know, I'm a chef. Uh, many chefs have these, these stories of growing up with their grandparents and their mother is cooking in the kitchen, um, these grandiose ideas of of, of whipping together these, these these recipes from the old country and, and, and tasting homemade gnocchi that grandmother used to make to us. Uh, I'm not one of those chefs. My mom, and, and I say this with as much loving kindness as I can, is not a good cook. Um, in fact, she's terrible. I mean, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. Uh, and... I mean, I grew up on bologna sandwiches, soggy cereal, uh, and these disgusting things called warm tuna sandwiches that she would make and wrap in hot dog buns and put cheese and then in the oven. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's where I came from as far as my culinary background goes. <coughs> my dad wasn't much better. He, his specialty was hamburger gravy, which is shit on the shingle down a level. <laughs> so, uh, but, <coughs> however, mom did have three things she did well. Uh, every Sunday morning, we would get um, homemade sourdough pancakes uh, with uh, maple syrup that she would make. And I, I've never asked her how she made the maple syrup, and I, I don't want to, because uh, it's too good of a memory. Um, she made... Uh, <laughs> She, she also made the, and, and, and she made sticky buns, and, and, and she only made these uh, for special occasions when we had overnight guests, um, and they were just these goopy, doughy things that she would put together, throw in a bunt pan and in the oven and bake, and they would come out, and so sticky you could, you could build log cabins <laughs> with it if you chose to. Um, and then the last thing that she did was, uh, was popcorn. Every Sunday evening, now this is northwest Kansas uh, in the mid to late 70s um, where we had three channels to choose from, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Um, every night, I mean every night, every Sunday night, uh, there was the ABC Sunday night movie, and I don't care what was playing, we would sit down and we would watch it um, because <laughs> this is northwest Kansas in the 70s, there's not a whole hell of a lot going on, but grass growing and paint drying, and so the ABC movie was it. Um, but mom would make a batch of popcorn every single Sunday night, and she had this giant, big, gray stone uh, bowl that she would put it in. And so I'd seen mom uh, make it over and over and over again, and it's my mom's popcorn, actually, that has convinced me that popcorn should be considered its own food group. Um, so uh, this one particular spring day when I got off the bus, I was hungry. 
uh, I decided that I was going to make some popcorn. Um, and, and, and again, these are the days before uh, microwaves. Well, m microwaves were around, but they were the size of small, small bedrooms. <laughs> and <laughs> you had to be the doctor in town to afford one, and, and we couldn't afford one. And, and microwave popcorn was still a few years away, so we had to do it the old school way with it in a pot, oil, and over a, over a, a fire. Now, popcorn making was not my first foray into the, uh, into the world of fine cuisine. I had already made my mark uh, when I was younger with uh, the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. The classic peanut butter and jelly sandwich is served peanut butter on the bottom, jelly on the top, and the reason for that is it helps keep the, so the, 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 the integrity of, 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 of the bread. However, <laughs> my bold and innovative move was to flip the sandwich and serve the jelly on the bottom and, and the, uh, the, the peanut butter on the top, and may God himself have mercy on my mother if she had the audacity to serve it to me with the jelly on the top and the peanut butter on the bottom. So I, uh, I was, I was, I was well-versed, you could say, in, in already the small details of great high cuisine <laughs> that would later <laughs> show forth in my, uh, in, my, in my career, which I now put to good use. Um, a couple weeks earlier, Mom and Dad had un no uncertain terms told me to never, ever, ever use the stove again. What happened was... Um, I, uh, this is after the peanut butter and jelly things. Something pretty cocky, I can do this. I decided to warm up some, um, some SpaghettiOs on the stove, <laughs> and uh, apparently cooking 102 doesn't, uh, 101 doesn't cover this, but in cooking 102, you find out that Tupperware doesn't <laughs> work so well on, on the open flame. So, um, <laughs> You almost burned the house down one time, and you fucking never try to use it as a stove again, right? But I was. <laughs> I had a chef say the same thing to me actually one time uh, early in my, my apprenticeship, but uh, we'll, that's, a, that's a different story. Uh, I was undeterred though. I, uh, I, I, I thought I'm hungry, I want popcorn, so I, I went and I dug out mom's, uh, I dug out the pot that I always seen mom do it. And I'd seen mom do this for years. I found the pan that she used, I, I put oil in it, I, I put popcorn in it, I turned it on, I threw the, um, I threw the lid on it, and I started shaking, because that's what she did, we just shake, 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 shake. And all of a sudden, it started happening, pop, 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 and I go, oh my God, this is freaking working. <laughs> so, <laughs> so off we go. And, 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 and so uh, I, I knew enough to know that when, it, when the popcorn started to slow down, You've got to take it and you've got to tilt it into the into the thing, you know. So I tilted into this great. Well, first of all, I had to get the 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 the, the bowl off of the, the 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 refrigerator, which I almost dropped and broke. When that would have been my ass. <laughs> <laughs> Two things I did wrong. I was cooking on the stove and I broke mom's. I would have broke mom's bowl. Um, but I got it in there and I threw the salt on there and I tossed it, and and and, and I had this like this epiphany. It's like, oh my God, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I fell in love right then and there. And like every good young kid in love, you go out and you get married immediately. Um, and I, 
decided that from that day forward, that's, that's, that's exactly one that I wanted to do. And, and actually, to this day at the restaurant, we serve a – we give everybody at the end of dinner, uh, amongst a couple other things, but a small bowl of, of popcorn so that uh, you all can, in, can partake in that, that one absolutely spectacular moment <laughs> in my life. And it's been a hell of a love affair, don't get me wrong. I mean, I have, uh, it's been 39 years that we've been going out. And like any long-term relationship, there are the ups and there are the downs. I mean, I've had, I've had dinner services that first New Year's Eve that I want to forget. I've had, um, I, I carry a, in my memory, I, I, I carry a list of five dishes that are just so god-awful that I would prefer to forget them. But but, you know, that's, that's your typical long-term relationship. You know, some things are good, some things are bad. But for the most part, she has given me an amazing life. I mean, I have lived a, a storied, I have, I have met people that, uh, that are the most interesting people in the world. Um, I've, I've had the opportunity, because of her, to, to drink some of the best wines ever produced. I've had the opportunity to eat in some of the best restaurants to ever uh, beyond the face of the planet. Um, I have, uh, because I'm a chef, I, we've got this weird way of, of nuzzling ourselves into parties with dignitaries and celebrities. Um, I have, uh, I have because of her, actually, you know, been recognized as, uh, I've earned a Michelin star, which, 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 which kind of puts me at, at the top, yeah, <laughs> you know? I'm so glad you know what that is. I'm so tired of explaining what that is. <laughs> that means I'm doing a good job. Um, I, uh, I, I co-own and co-chef one of the best restaurants in Michigan, which by extension puts me into uh, one of the best restaurants in, in, in the country. Um, I, have, uh, I have got a little bit of, uh, a little moderate amount of fame, and because of that, it comes with some pretty cool perks because of, you know, the cook's house. Um, she's been okay. I mean, I, I can't argue with her. I think we'll be around a little longer. Uh, but <laughs> the kitchen is a demanding and jealous mistress. Uh, and, and to be more blunt about it, she's a life-sucking bitch. <laughs> um, If you want, if, if you want to dance with her, you you better be prepared to pick up the check. There is no going to a coffee shop in New York and and pay and, and somebody else paying. She, she's going to make you pay. Um, she is neither easy nor free. And if you choose to take her hand, you need to understand that she is going to, to demand everything from you. She's not going to give you an ounce of room. Uh, to have a life of your own. <laughs> when I was younger, it really wasn't much of a problem. Hell, I could go all night long. You cook, you cook 15, 20 hours a day, you go out and you party like an animal, and you get back up and you do it all over again. Um, it wasn't until I actually started getting older and, and really in the past couple years that I began to understand perhaps she is maybe a little bit too demanding, that maybe um, what she wants from me uh, in particular is more than I'm ready to give out. And the one dread actually that I live with right now in life is that I'm starting to discover this a little bit too late. 
long ago, I accepted the absurdness of wanting to have a regular life, of, of, of living like you guys. We have 40-hour work weeks, which is just a joke, if you want my mind. <laughs> Weekends off, holidays off. Um, did you know, and I, I, had, I actually had to look this up before I got here, there's a such thing called family time. People actually see their children grow up. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. Um, over the past year, I've seen kind of the karmic fruits of, of, of this long love affair that I've had with my very first love. I've started to see these, these fruits kind of start to come out. And I'm not so sure that I have what it takes to pay the bill. It's, it's high. Um, I've checked my balance uh, in my account, and it's, it's running low. Um, and I found myself, as time has gone on, resenting her more and more. Um, it wasn't long ago that I was calling the pass at the restaurant, and I, uh, the, the, the place was packed. It was busy, and it was noisy. And we had a, a party over here of like eight or nine people, and they were clinging champagne glasses and celebrating a birthday. Then over here, there was this little lovey-dovey young couple holding hands and celebrating an anniversary. Then over there in table three, there was a party of four friends who were just having the time of their life and, and laughing and having a good time. And I remember feeling this, this enormous sense of gratitude. I mean, it is one of the neatest things to look out and see a group of people you don't know having fun. They chose to come in there and to celebrate and to come and eat my food. But at the same time, I had this, um, this, this sense of sadness kind of sweep through me uh, when I realized that I have no idea what that means. I have no idea how that feels uh, and that I wish I did. So when mom and dad got home that night, um, from the Sears store, the smell of popcorn was still in the air, uh, and trust me, I did everything I could to, <laughs> to, to waft that out. Uh, luckily, though, the, the smell of popcorn permeating the air doesn't seem to piss the parents off quite as much as burnt plastic, so <laughs> I had that going for me. Um, and much to my surprise, they weren't angry with me. Uh, and I think it came down to the fact that I was, I was so excited and that I told them uh, that, Mom, Dad, I found out what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I begged them to let me cook them a, a, bag of, a, a batch of popcorn. And they did. And they did. Uh, and uh, my mom might not be the very best cook in the world, but the one thing she did do is she told me that that was the best popcorn she ever had. <laughs> and she made me feel like the greatest chef who ever exists. Thank you. In the next story, Brad Lystra says that he generally doesn't consider himself superstitious, but a witch doctor who handcrafted some mojo for him may have changed his mind. So the first time I ever bet on the Kentucky Derby, it was 1999, and I was a junior in college. 
And one of my best friends in college was a fellow by the name of Charlie. And he had grown up and lived in Louisville his whole life. And he had a derby party. And he invited us to his apartment. And his apartment was full of folks because everybody wanted to go watch a derby with a guy from Louisville. And he did a classic thing that you do at a derby party. He wrote down the name of every horse that was going to be running, all 20 horses on a slip of paper. You put a dollar in a hat, and you pick a horse. And I picked something like, there's a horse that had something like a name like Chance Encounter is the name of the horse I picked. And I didn't win. <laughs> I didn't win at all. Char Charismatic ended up winning that year. Charlie and I w were fantastic friends, though. And a couple of years later, it was actually, so that was 99. In 2004, Charlie called me up. I was living in Ann Arbor at the time. He was down in Louisville. And he wanted me to come down and sit in the infield in the Kentucky Derby. And I was like, okay, let's get together, old college friends. This would be fantastic. Let's go watch it. He's like, you know what, Brad? The Derby and the infield is something everybody should experience at least once. So get down here. I go down. We're uh, driving around town the night before the Derby looking for a place to eat. And we kind of, everything's filled up. Like Louisville just swells with people, kind of like this place during Cherry Fest or the film festival. The Derby is kind of their moment in that part of early May, in that part of Kentucky. And we can't find anything. We, but we do find this jambalaya restaurant. It's called Me Oh My Jambalaya, and there isn't a person in the entire place. <laughs> it's completely <laughs> empty. But we go for it. We're like, why not? This, this will be fine. We need to we sit on the sidewalk. And we actually see it ourselves. And an older woman walks outside. She's about, you know, she's in her 70s. We're, we're the only people in the place. And she's holding a speaker, actually not unlike this speaker. And she actually kind of reminds me of like Atticus Finch's maid in To Kill a Mockingbird for whatever reason, <laughs> but kind of heavier set. Um, and she's wearing a smock kind of uh, clothing. She's older. and. She's holding the speaker, and she yells at us. She goes, hang up my speaker. <laughs> and I actually look at Charlie, and I'm like, what? Like, she wants, she wants us to hang up her speaker. And she goes, it's the night before the derby. We're going to have music on this sidewalk. Hang up my speaker. I'm not the AV guy of the group. Charlie kind of more is. So, so Charlie take, takes the speaker, and he hangs it up, and he connects the wires outside the building, and, and we, now have, we now have music. We open up the menus, and there's no prices on the menus. And we're like, what? Like, you don't, I mean, there's no, no prices. And she goes, you will pay what I say. <laughs> <laughs> and I look at Charlie, I look at Charlie, and I'm like, okay. Um, let's just go for it. Like, we're here, I'm on vacation, sort of. Like, it'll be fine. I can't, what could possibly go wrong? It's like, the menu's red beans and rice and jambalaya and etouffee and things like that. So we order our food, and it's fantastic. It's like Cajun, uh, Louisiana, Southern soul food cooking. It's, it's amazing. She comes out towards the end, and Charlie, we're just talking. And uh, we learned that her name is Queen Madame Intizar. <laughs> and we, um, Charlie explains to her that it's uh, my first time at the Derby. I've never been to the Derby before. And she goes, you've never been to the Derby? She goes, I'm going to make you some mojo. <laughs> and we're like, okay. So she goes, come back into the kitchen. We're still the only people in the entire place. 
She takes us back into the kitchen. And I'm going to remind you, she's like 75, or she's an old, heavyset woman. And she climbs up on her butcher block cooking countertop, which is pretty uh, kind of amazing and agile. And I'm standing with Charlie, looking at her like, and she's on a very, very top shelf, like where that duct work is right there. She reaches up, and there's this red jar of red liquid with what appears to be like a tree branch in it, like a tree root. And she reaches up like on her tiptoes, pulls it down, and then she takes out this giant meat cleaver, like a Fred Flintstone, like Bam Bam meat cleaver, like the <laughs> biggest thing in the whole house, like for ham hocks or something. And she takes the tree root out of the red marinating liquid, and, and she just starts bashing on it with this, with this cleaver. <laughs> and, and I just keep looking at Charlie, I'm like, this is ridiculous. And um, she goes, now give me a dollar. And each Charlie and I give her a dollar, and she, she rolls our dollar around this tree root, and she hands us each our dollars back. And well, actually, she says, like, she kind of turns around, and she says, we can't really hear what she's saying, but she, she puts some, she, like, speaks to the mojo that she's creating. <laughs> and uh, she never said she was, like, a voodoo witch doctor. But everything that she was doing seemed to indicate that she was some sort of voodoo witch doctor. So she gives us back our dollars and she says, this is your mojo. Tomorrow at the race, when your horse is running, you rub on it with your thumbs like this and your horse will win. And there's only one rule with the mojo. She says, this, this will work forever. Do not let any other woman ever touch your mojo. <laughs> if she touches it, the power's gone. <laughs> but until you'll win, as long as it's like that. So, so we go to the Derby the next day. Um, it's 2004. I put down $20 on a horse to win. I've, I've still, this is only the second time I've ever been on horse racing. And I'll never forget sitting in the infield with Charlie, rubbing on my mojo, <laughs> <laughs> watching, watching the horses go around the track and my horse wins. It's, I bet on like a five to one, which is not uncommon. I win a hundred bucks, 20 bucks, five to one, hundred bucks. And I <laughs> try to hold this mojo, I'm like, hey, I, I won, and it must, it obviously works. <laughs> uh, so he goes, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, you're gonna take all that money, and you're gonna put it on the Preakness. Let's do the same horse. The horse was Smarty Jones a great, great derby winner. And I'm watching the Preakness two weeks, three weeks later, whenever they run the Preakness, and I'm rubbing on the mojo, and Smarty wins the Preakness. So now I've turned, was 20 bucks, now I got 200 bucks. The mojo still works. So a couple years go by. Charlie and I don't really talk about it. We don't think anything of it. I do talk to him on the phone once or twice, and he, he actually informs me that his girlfriend picked his mojo up off the shelf, and his was no longer working. But he's like, as long as you still have yours, we should be okay. Um, so we decide, it, a little time goes by, but we decide we should really, we should try this again. Like, we should, we should bet on horses. You know, it's, it happens once a year. It's, it's a fun thing. So we decide to go for the Superfecta 
which is superfecta is, it's different than just picking a horse to win. Superfecta is one through four in order. So it's a little more like a lottery. Like you have to get one through four in perfect sequence it to win. And the payout is quite a bit more than just a, a win bet on, on a derby. And we, we, we start to kind of hone our skills. And, and there's this thing that's happening. We have this kind of mojo experience and that kind of, it's a seed that was kind of planted, right? And we're starting to like really study the horses because we want the mojo to be true. We want the superstition to be happening. But at the same time, concurrently, we're starting to like study and learn everything about every horse and every permutation and everything about the trainers, the jockeys, their running styles, how they run in certain weather. I mean, we now are sort of becoming experts, but we still have the mojo. And a couple years go by and we come really close. And then in 2011, we hit the superfecta. And Charlie and I win $25,000 <laughs> with animal, animal Kingdom and uh, three other horses that came, came in, whose names I can't remember. So we get one through four in order. I, I go, uh, one of the things that happened, this is a non sequitur of the story, but not entirely a non sequitur. I go on a run right after that because I have all this energy and all this steam and I need to burn it off. And I go on a run, I'm living in DC at the time and my route takes me by the White House. And I'm running by the White House right after hitting this bet. And I'm running by Pennsylvania Avenue and I run into someone I went to college with who's the, uh, the press secretary for the president. And this is May of 2011. His name is Tommy, I went to college with him. I was like, Tommy. I was like, dude, I, I don't, we're not like good friends, but we're familiar. Went to college together. I was like, I just, I just hit the superfecta on the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. And I kid you not, he goes, we just got Bin Laden. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, I, I don't know if he's a one upper or what, but I was like, my God. I didn't think anybody could be possibly thinking they had a better day. I, I, I come back from my run, I call up Charlie. I was like, Charlie, we gotta get this money. How do you collect $25,000 from, from a winning racehorse ticket? And he goes, I have no idea. <laughs> we, need to, we, need to, we need to turn it in at a track in New York. Char he's living in, a he lives in Brooklyn at, at the time. So he's like, why don't you come up to New York Aqueduct Racetrack in Queens is the closest track. So we go, I, a couple of weeks, a little time goes by, but we're gonna go collect. I, I go up to New York. Now Aqueduct, like I said, it's in Queens. It's in a rough neighborhood. And it's not a glamorous racetrack. And we're not going there on a day when there's actual racing. It's an off day at the track. And to be fair, it's kind of out by JFK Airport. It, it, it reminds me of like a bus station on a really bad day in terms of the atmosphere. And there are people there who are gambling who there's no racing happening. So they're all watching simulcast TV and it's kind of down, it's a bit of a down and out scene. It's not the glamorous side of racing. And Charlie goes, Brad, these are grinders. He's like, that's the term I use. I don't, I had never heard it before, but like it's kind of a rough and tumble place. And I was like, Charlie, we're, we're like collecting $25,000. Like how is this, 
okay, it's like this is a little different. It's um, so we go. I was like, do we go to the window? And he's like, yeah, I, I guess we just go to the window. So we go to this window. We hand the, the woman our ticket, and she, her, I remember she looks at it, and her eyes kind of light up, and. We're like, do we get a check? And she's like, no. I was like, do you, do, do you go somewhere else for this? And she's like, no. We're gonna and she's like, we're going to do this right here. And I was like, <laughs> and I'm looking around. I'm looking around at the racetrack in this open, large open room. And I'm like, you're going to count out $25,000 right here? And everyone's going to see this. And the New York Racing Association, Racing Association uh, maybe could change this, but <laughs> I'll never forget her standing there, literally, like the count on Sesame Street, like $100, $200, and it goes on. It's, I mean, it's a stack about this big. And she puts it in this giant manila envelope and hands it to Charlie. I'm like, dude, like everybody just saw this, man. And I'll never forget, she knew we were looking a little concerned, but she also knew that the concern was legitimate. And she turns to us and she goes, do you guys want an escort <laughs> to your vehicle? And I'm like thinking, yeah. And I was like, Charlie, we should probably get like an escort to the car. And he's like, I don't know, what do you think? And he asked the lady and she goes, you know, I really wouldn't recommend the escort because you, n you never know how far somebody will follow you. And I was like, <laughs> she's like, she's like supporting the fact that this is ridiculous <laughs> and that she's about to give us this money and we're supposed to leave, just walk out of here like everything's normal and people are watching. So we take the manila envelope, Charlie puts it in his pants like this and it's like a giant wad of cash <laughs> and we run. <laughs> we ran all the way through the racetrack as fast as we could, <laughs> down the stairs to the car, and we, we peeled out. <laughs> now, a year goes by, another year goes by. Well, no, it's 2013 now, so we miss a year. We lost in 2012. 2013, we hit the Superfecta again. <laughs> now, we, this is a good amount of money. And I actually, the first down payment of my first house was my winnings from the California Chrome 2013 Kentucky Derby. <laughs> so we, that, there's the collection story, everything's kind of more online now, so the collect, there's no aqueduct situation. <laughs> but word gets out. And Charlie lives in Louisville now. And somehow, in some way, the mayor of Louisville founds out that we have hit two superfectas in three years. And he gives us tickets to the, I think it's the 2014 Kentucky Derby. And he sits us at the finish line. Because as Charlie said, the mayor likes to encourage entrepreneurship. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, is uh, entrepreneurship. So that's, so I'll never forget showing up in 2014 and we're sitting there at the finish line and I turn around 
and we're sitting in front of Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. And I, the most amazing seats in the entire house. And we hit the Superfecta again. <laughs> now, and this is with American Pharaoh. Now the payout, because of the odds in 2014, it might be the mojo. The, it, because of the odds in 2014 or 2015, the payout, it wasn't, the payout was marginal, to say the least. But the experience was absolutely fantastic. We continue to bet every year. And ho hopefully we'll continue to win. Now, I don't know if the mojo is the key here. It's hard to say. I'm not really that superstitious. But <laughs> what, I, what I do know is if that encounter kind of created a chain reaction of events. She kind of created this interesting element or this interesting thing that was unique that kind of inspired us to study more than we ever had. Now, I looked up the name Intizar the other day. I had no idea what Intizar was. And it's an Islamic name. And it's the Islamic name for triumph. And they say horse racing is a sport of kings. And there's a lot of kings in this story. One of the horses was Animal Kingdom, American Pharaoh, Tom Brady. <laughs> I've got the president's men are celebrating victories in far off battles here. But none of this was possible if it wasn't for a queen, Queen Madame Intizar, Queen Triumph, who gave us a good luck charm that set us on our path. <laughs> that is how you win Triple Crown Horse Race Handicapping. <laughs> In the final story of the evening, Elon Cameron says that although she stopped being a server many, many years ago, she still is a bit of a legend at one restaurant where she once worked. I'm a pretty good tipper. In fact, I love the opportunity to overtip. My friend Mary and I just did it the other night. It was so fun. It was a dead night at Fufu, and we were just like, here, we're going to give you... 70%. <laughs> and it just like felt so great. And I, I really enjoy the recreational activity of consumption. I delight in the art of great service and I do my very best to pay for the care and consideration that I get as a consumer. I never go below 20% even with bad service, even with intentionally bad service. And you know what I'm talking about. I know what it takes to get to that place that place where you just hate humans because they breathe. <laughs> the place of servitude where you become acutely aware of how privilege informs everyone's experience. The place where you just don't care anymore. The place where you get your own goddamn water refill because I've refilled your hot water four times and you're gonna leave me one goddamn dollar. <laughs> but I'm getting ahead of myself. After finishing what I could of my undergraduate experience at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, I did freelance portrait photography, freelance graphic design, and I waited tables. The ratio of that work was one to one to 8,000. 
Um, I was far from my first restaurant job. I had always had big city aspirations as a kid, and people always encouraged me to learn how to wait tables because you can do it anywhere, and you can make a pretty decent living. So from the time I was 14, I'd been trying to become a server. I'd been a busboy. I'd been a prep cook. I'd been a dish dog. I'd been a hostess, I'd been a food runner, and I failed miserably at all of these things <laughs> because I wasn't a waitress. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm just not particularly good at waiting for a thing that I want by doing something adjacent to it that has less glory and payout. <laughs> I looked young for my age, and with a series of undiagnosed learning disabilities and mental health limitations, I never got it <laughs> until a spring day in Chicago, it was 1994. <laughs> Amy, a soprano who specialized in Baroque music, that's how she introduced herself. Hi, my name is Amy, I'm a soprano, I specialize in Baroque. <laughs> There's something about sopranos. <laughs> and oboists, but we'll talk about that later. Anyway, <clears throat> she mentioned that she just started working at the Lucky Platter, which was by far my favorite restaurant in all of Chicagoland. I was so excited. It was the place I could go and eat out and act like a normal person, but not spend more than $4. <laughs> I would get the cup of Caribbean pumpkin soup. The cornbread came for free, and it was just a beautiful experience. A lot of times, my friends would accuse me of trying to take them to Canada when we'd ride the train up to Evanston. <laughs> they were just like, it just never ends. But by the time we got into the restaurant, we'd step into this world of vintage, weird kitsch, bad portraits, and odd art, strange assemblage, sculptures everywhere, and 1970s surfer music, and they had delicious food. That was the point at which people were like, oh, maybe Evanston doesn't suck. Okay, this is kind of cool. The restaurant was a gem. Amy put in a good word. I met with one of the two owners and was hired on the spot. That should have been a sign. <laughs> I started the following Monday morning at 6.30 a.m. I got there early. I was the only person there. I was just pacing out front. I was so excited. I was raised working class. I had this experience of imagining any job I'd ever seen that I would probably have to do it at some point. So if I saw the garbage man, I'd be like, okay, all right, good lift. I'm going to have to study that. You know, and I'd be, on the, I'd be on the CTA bus, and I'd be like, probably going to be a bus driver sometime. I feel ya. You know, it's just like I always had a lot of compassion for the people around me because I figured I'd probably have to do those jobs. But when I became a server, something switched, and I was like, wow, I'm like part of this other world now. I get to partake of a world of, of consumption and delights in this way that was really different in my mind. And I developed this little mantra for myself the seamless illusion of effortless service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. Learning to wait tables is learning to, to do 1,000 little tasks well and simultaneously. Take orders, get drinks, deliver food, be friendly, be knowledgeable about the menu, make suggestions, talk about the day, talk about the weather, clean up after people, clean up after people's children, apologize when something goes wrong, fix it, give them free stuff, there were breakfast shifts and dinner shifts. You either worked 6.30 a.m. to 3-ish or 3-ish till around midnight. When I began waiting tables, I was a go-getter. I couldn't wait to work a double. I loved covering other people's shifts. If someone had a table and needed to split, I got it. I was just 
like diving into home base all the time at the restaurant. And I didn't really care if I smelled like coffee grounds and cornbread when I got home because I had pockets full of cash. And the seamless illusion of effortless service. <laughs> I don't think I ever said it out loud. I just repeated it in my head. I'd say it when I was filling the coffee baskets full of 90% Colombian, 10% chicory. It's the exact ratio. I'd say it when I poured the thick, viscous egg cream over the ice and hit it with the soda gun. Fluffy clouds of sweet deliciousness would erupt. I thought it when I whipped pounds of butter and then piped them into little tiny paper cups. Ken was the owner who hired me. He was a big talker, he was proud, boisterous, golf-playing jackass. He was an alcoholic who had fits of rage that reminded me of my childhood and my alcoholic father. <laughs> Eric was the other owner. He was the visionary. He was the freaked out, nervous, anxious guy. I got him. He was a baker of the highest order. He would make pastry that made you hate your own mother. <laughs> I have this like pre-war, post-war relationship with the apricot cheese flaky that he still makes today because of my severe gluten intolerance. You should eat it. He was an intense guy to work for. He wanted everything just so. He wanted the soup served just so. He wanted everything right for the customer. And he would pull people aside when a plate looked just perfect, and he'd be like, this is what it's supposed to look like. And he would also yank you off the floor if you were about to serve a table inappropriately. And he would call all the servers around and be like, you guys, what's wrong with this plate? And inside, I was like, I know, I know. You know, I was just, I, it's the crab cakes. You know, I was just like freaking out because, but you know, you're, you've established some amount of camaraderie with your colleagues, so you're not gonna be a jack wagon about it. And so he was like, what's wrong with this plate? You know, like, and everyone's just sweating and starting to shake because it's, it's, you know, Ken was the dad who like drinks and does violent things, but Eric was the dad who like lives inside your mind. <laughs> you know, he was one of those people who is just like, oh, you found the thing I'm most insecure about. <laughs> it was the sauce, there was no sauce on the crab cakes. It wasn't my service or else I would have, you know, had to eat a lot of crow and correct it myself. I would have thrown a kitchen fit, which is what they called it which is basically a white lady marching into a room full of Mexican guys and yelling <laughs> about food that we all make money from serving to annoying people out there. <laughs> Just in case, you know, you didn't know. To say that the staffing situation at the Lucky Platter was less than ideal is such an enormous understatement. At one point near the end of my tenure there, a table full of four women sitting underneath a giant lobster boy poster from a vintage circus said, what is this service? Is this like Ed DeBevix or something? <laughs> which is a diner in downtown Chicago which is known for their rude, rude, rude service. So that was a check. But waiting tables takes it out of you. It takes it out of your body. Sure, you walk home with pockets full of money, but you're beat up, you're sore, your mind is tired, 
And you probably need a couple of hours to just unwind, even to just relax, let alone be around other people. At first, it was exhilarating. I learned how to prioritize and multitask and carry and serve what people like, what people don't like. And I was able to kind of adapt this innate skill that I'd always had of reading people to being able to read a table. And I'd even start thinking, like, I bet I know what they're going to order. And it was this fun thing that I would enjoy. And it was great. I was making it. I bought a 1977 Chevy Nova with cash, best car I've ever owned. I bought a killer stereo with cash, you know, and my friends and I would go out to eat all the time. We lived this life of luxury, even though it was kind of imagined. <laughs> I loved the food at the Lucky Platter. I'd eaten most of it. <laughs> and what I hadn't tried, I figured out I got a discount now. So I would just like come in early, eat at the restaurant, leave with leftovers. And Ken, the more assholeish of the owners, kind of took note of this, and he would always be like, he'd catch me. There was this little half wall at the waitressing station. It kind of like ducked down. So I figured out how if I kept a little snack back there, I could like just hide <laughs> under the table. Like I could take a bite, and no one would know because I was just I'm running around all day. You get hungry. <laughs> But Ken would catch me inevitably, and he'd be like, "Ee!" because he couldn't bother to say the rest of my name. <laughs> you are always stuffing your face. <laughs> or, "Ee! she's the hungriest person I've ever met. <laughs> it was a high-stress job. There was tension between management and servers. There was tension between kitchen staff and servers. Most of the women I worked with dealt with this by flirting and playing their pretty dumb girl card, but my deck didn't come with one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so when Solomon the salad guy <laughs> decided he was going to grab me in the walk-in cooler <laughs> in my like tender upper rib flesh, which is nowhere you touch a lady. <laughs> I didn't even think. I'd been practicing martial arts for about six years at that point. <laughs> so I locked his hand to my rib, twisted clockwise, blocked his elbow, and dislocated his shoulder. The kitchen guys never said a word to me after that <laughs> night. <laughs> and though we'd been like family, like any family I'd known, the dysfunction went from being kind of fun to being really fucked up pretty quick. <laughs> it was less and less productive, and at the apex, I got the following note from Ken, the braggart, windbag, golfing asshole. I'm not a person who's like really good with numbers. I have to write it down. If it's two number, if it's a two-digit number that you have to subtract from another two-digit number, I write it down just because I don't trust myself with numbers. I'm not good with numbers. And this showed up in my checkout a few times. And so Ken wrote me the following note. Dear Elon, if you fuck up your checkout one more time, I will have Amy hold you down while I kick you in the throat. Love, Ken.
I felt a trembling feeling <laughs> in my guts that was not fear. I felt this tectonic shift. I walked into the bathroom and rage cried. I closed myself in a stall and I felt like a caged animal and I didn't really know what I was going to do next, so I kicked a hole in the bathroom wall. <laughs> it was surprisingly easy. <laughs> Even over the tile. And though a slight bit exhilarating, it terrified me. <laughs> I wrapped up my shift. I did my side work impeccably. I went home, I showered, I dressed up and marched into another restaurant and applied for a job immediately. I even asked a friend who was a law student what she thought I should do. She said I should file a PPO. But I gave my notice. No one picked up the hole in the bathroom wall until it was about my last few days and I just tried to pretend I was one of those dumb pretty girls. I don't know what happened. <laughs> Maybe it was a stroller. <laughs> I only told one friend, I told one friend that I'd kicked that hole in the bathroom wall and I told her after my last shift and she told one friend who is one of those people <laughs> who just always wants to like have the upper hand and will throw anyone under the bus to get it. And so she told the management like the minute she knew. And it was one of those things where I just felt like she was kind of, my friend was kind of like aghast but then proud of me. <laughs> and I'm actually friends with Eric now. I've cooked dinner for his wife and he, Kelly. They're lovely people. Ken, on the other hand, is a fucking sociopath who should be <laughs> locked in a padded cell and is one of two human beings I hope never to see again in my life. <laughs> I could talk to you about the horrible things that he's done, not even to me, but I really kind of wish him a little bit of ill. <laughs> I learned a lot of things working at the Lucky Platter. I learned a few things the next restaurant I worked at. Most of them had nothing to do with waitressing. More of them were about politics and people and why people are jerks. But I reached that place. I reached that dark, giving, no fucks place where you really don't care if you make money or if people get their food or if your coworker was so drunk she sliced her finger to the bone along with the sourdough she was about to serve. I got to that place where the manager at the last restaurant I worked at said, you have next week off. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't take next week off. She's like, yeah, you have next week off. <laughs> and I, I had to say, I'm like, Gail, what do you mean I have next week off? She's like, we want you to think about whether you want to do this or not. <laughs> and I didn't. So I applied at a temp agency. And I got a job that I kind of liked. I started working in a not-for-profit organization and doi doing work that felt meaningful to me. It took me years to go back to the Lucky Platter. But by the time we left Chicago, we were going there with some regularity. And there would always be this moment, usually around the end of service, where a group of servers would come over and huddle by our table and say, is it true? Are you the one who kicked the hole in the bathroom wall? 
And I just felt this warmth of camaraderie. Like, these people I didn't even know were kind of like my war buddies now. I was like, yep, that was me. Thank you so much. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, the Workshop Brewing Company, and our guest MC Ben Whiting. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us next month for Reunion, our final show of the regular season. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 